Hello, and welcome back to the OWASP podcast. It's Matt Tassaro again. And in this episode, I speak with Amitai Cohen, who's been thinking a lot about tenant isolation. This is a problem for more than just cloud providers. Anyone with a SaaS offering or even a large enterprise may want to isolate customers or parts of their businesses from each other. Several useful items came out of this, including the Cloud VolumDB, which catalogs security issues in cloud services, and the Peach Tenant Isolation Framework. You may not think you need to worry about tenant isolation, but I bet you should at least keep it in mind. Here we go. Enjoy. I'm here with Amitai Cohen, and he's going to talk to us about isolation, and particularly isolation in cloud providers. Like how do you keep one tenant from interfering or otherwise stomping on another tenant? And so Amitai, can you give our audience just a quick introduction to yourself? What's your background? How have you come to, to you know explore this area? Hi, so my name is Amitai. I was previously doing threat intelligence for the Israeli military. So pretty far away from like cloud, I live in Israel. And I joined Wiz, my company I work at now about a year ago, and I started working on sort of vulnerability intelligence, trying to figure out how we can make sure that the vulnerabilities that we surface for our customers are like the most relevant ones. And we have another team that works on pure vulnerability research. And one of the projects that I started working on pretty quickly after I joined the company was trying to figure out how we could take the vulnerabilities that they discovered and try to figure out how we could actually translate this into practical advice for defenders. So like not just talk about what sort of vulnerabilities are out there, but also like how can we actually prevent this industry-wide. Um, and other than that, I'm still working on Threat Intel for Wiz. I'm still working on a bunch of other stuff. Awesome. That's an interesting aspect of the cloud providers because they're not they're not traditional software that, right, that we all use that might have CVEs and the normal sort of way that issues get reported. They run their own show and they're not small companies. And so it's a strange problem space because you only have, a, I mean, well, there's, there's many cloud providers, but really there's a handful of really big ones. Even if you get into the smaller players, there's not thousands and thousands of them. So it's interesting that you're able to look at this because how do you, how do I want to say this? It just, it's an area where the reporting has been kind of ad hoc at best. You may yeah. get some, you'll hear something in the news, but there's no real framework or anything to talk about it. Right. So you're obviously Wiz is interacting with cloud providers all the time. How did you, what did you do with this desire to, to get things going or to get a framework around this problem? Like you said, like it's very random and obviously the stuff that gets published is only like the tip of the iceberg. Most of the issues don't get published at all. It's usually like in the interest of the security researcher to publish, whereas the cloud vendor usually doesn't publish. Like our vulnerability research team initially was very focused on cloud providers, but then they sort of realized that a lot of the stuff here, like a lot of the stuff you could find wrong with cloud vendor implementations, you could also find with SaaS and PaaS implementations in general. If everybody's using the same vulnerable extensions for the DBMS, then you know the same vulnerability or variations on it are gonna pop up in a bunch of different services all over the place. 
So we set out to, first of all, okay, we have to do enumeration. There are vulnerabilities popping up left and right. A few years ago, cross-tenant might have seemed like a mythical beast that nobody had ever actually seen evidence of. But now I think we've all been convinced that this is like a, a real thing. It would be very interesting to find out who might actually be exploiting these, either as zero, like as zero days, for example. I'm not familiar with any examples of a nation state or a cybercrime actor like actually like getting their hands on one of these vulnerabilities before it's been discovered and patched. But I'm guessing that we're not that far from the day when it's discovered. So the first thing we did was like, let's enumerate, let's figure out, let's set up a database, which we did called clownvoldb.org, where we set up like an open source project for anybody to contribute information about vulnerabilities. We aren't a bug bounty program. Like we don't want people to report bugs to us, but we do want them to, to list information about them. And as we progress, we found that there's a lot of information out there and a lot of it is severely lacking. So you wouldn't know how to detect if, you know, precisely if you are vulnerable to something, or you wouldn't know how long this vulnerability has existed in the service. Like it might've been a bug added in code a month ago. It might've been there since the service's inception. So that was sort of the starting point. And then the original idea for Peach was basically, let's try to figure out what a good benchmark for where you need the best isolation, because we know what good isolation looks like, but it's often overkill and it's expensive and it's hard to maintain and it's hard to develop for. And also you might end up with like, ironically creating more problems by over-isolating because you create a system that's so complex just to ensure isolation that you create new bugs and new potential for vulnerabilities that didn't exist beforehand. So the measure that we settled on was complexity. Let's look at how complex an interface is, like what is a measure of what are the chances that a vulnerability exists in it? And what are the chances that someone could find this vulnerability and exploit it? So that was the starting point for this project. I could see complexity being a great sort of metric to use. If you think about clouds and, and IAM policies, like that by far seems to be the most complex part of any kind of cloud. At least it has been for me interacting with them. There's so many choices and so many services with so many different. And is does list give you, what does list give you versus read versus uh, like the rabbit hole all the way down. So I could see this being highly productive. I love that complexity as a marker. So the cloud vuln DB, uh, how well has that been received? Have you had, uh, it seems like you've had quite a lot of reportings, any kind of interesting thing come out of that in its time of existence? So I think it's been pretty well received. There were some, some concerns in the beginning that this, it was, the project was a bit too corporate flavored because of the strong association to Wiz. So people were asking, would I continue to maintain this if I no longer worked at Wiz? which is a very good question. I think the answer is yes. Like, I think the project has become like a baby <laughs> for me. So uh, I, I think I definitely continue to maintain it, even if I weren't working for Wiz. I have no intention of leaving anytime soon. But so anyway, I think it's been pretty well received. I think when we try to figure out if it's being used by the industry, then we look for, like, is anyone referencing this? And slowly but surely, people are sort of using it like they would, rep like they would link to Wikipedia for an article. So they would link to the entry for a vulnerability in CloudVulnDB. So we're seeing that on news sites, we're seeing that in other repositories. So it seemed like it's slowly becoming like not necessarily incredibly widespread, it's still a very niche audience, 
but is being used. And we are getting people adding new entries, either just security researchers who find information about a new vulnerability and want to add it to the database. Other researchers who are working on a similar problem, like we've been working with, with Christophe Paracel, who's a, a researcher from France, who also focuses on the subject of cross-tenant, and he's also submitted a few things to the database. And also security researchers who who discover these bugs, often they'll add it on their own to the database, like in addition to publishing on their own websites. Yeah, I did a skim through it, and there seems to be a, a wide variety of submitters. It's not just, you know, whiz found, whiz found, whiz found. It's all over the place. You have consultancies, Datadog was there, I remember seeing. There's a bunch of different players in that space. Have you seen any traction from the SaaS providers on this? Because um, I could see a SaaS provider uncovering an aspect of their chosen cloud provider in trying to set up isolation for their own product. Yeah, so that's, we actually, uh, we've been wondering if we should expand the scope because right now CloudVolDB is limited like only to the hyperscale cloud providers. It's like Azure, AWS, GCP, and Oracle, and I think then IBM, and I think that's like it. We've been considering whether we should actually be expanding the scope to include also like SaaS providers. So it'll be essentially like a repository for service vulnerabilities in general and not just in the cloud. Um, oh, nice. But so well, far, nobody's nobody suggested like adding anything from that area. It's an interesting, having worked in a prior life, so to speak, at Rackspace, running the product security team for the cloud. Like I'm very familiar with this tenant isolation issue, and it's very interesting that a lot of the same issues are faced by a SaaS provider, right? How do I separate my customers? Am I going to have single tenant SaaS, multi tenant SaaS? Like, you know, if there, is there any shared resources or I just duplicate everything, like duplicating my costs, which is an interesting trade-off, right? Just from a business perspective. So yeah, that, I could see that being useful for the larger SaaS providers, even smaller SaaS providers, honestly, have to struggle with that sort of trade-off between how isolated and complex do I make it versus, well, just flat out cost, right? Yeah, I could give you a completely isolated individual setup, but I am basically, you know, one xing my cost for every customer right second two customers twice as much three customers three times as much right <laughs> not a favorable uh, cost curve if you're trying to yeah. run a business okay, so that's where peach comes in because the idea is that like i mentioned before that there, we're lacking a lot of information on cloud db like you'll see like there's a lot of empty fields or a lot of fields that are like unknown or null and the reason is that vendors rarely issue advisories that contain enough information. There are some vulnerabilities where the vendor doesn't even respond. Like a researcher will say, I found a vulnerability. I was in contact with a CSP. Here's what I discovered. You know, they patched it on this date. And from the vendor side, it's like crickets. So th there's one area where we sort of have to rely on vendor information, which is what mitigations were in place. Like what made this vulnerability even be possible in the first place? And why was it impactful? Like why weren't, why wasn't there a sandbox or why wasn't there something that prevented this vulnerability from being anything more than like a local privilege escalation with no impact. And the idea behind Peach, beyond what I mentioned before about using complexity as a measuring stick for where you need to invest more in security boundaries is calling on vendors to use it as a way to publish in more information about their architecture without helping hackers attack it. 
So without talking about like ex the exact implementation details, like we use this version of this and this version of this, I think it causes more harm than more good than harm to say this interface is is running on a container that's running on a VM and that is duplicated per tenant. That doesn't really that doesn't help hackers do anything, and it only helps convince your convince your customer base that you're investing in isolation. And then if something doesn't work, or if there's a vulnerability being discovered, we can talk about what is actually effective. And then we can do comparisons between different services and say, you know, there was a vulnerability here, maybe it also exists here because they're using the same type of mitigation. Maybe their mitigation or maybe their type of sandboxing is just as, as susceptible to this type of vulnerability. Yeah, that's super interesting. I remember a lot of conversations in the product group at, at Rackspace with our cloud and it's the, the fundamental difference between a customer being able to shoot themselves in a foot and shoot somebody else in a foot, right? Like <laughs> very important aspect. And the, the peach model is, is very interesting. You, can you kind of walk us through that? Because I obviously looked at it. I don't want to steal all your thunder, but so let's say I have a SaaS product and I'm curious to make sure that I have the right level of isolation. What's the process I go to sort of implement or use or whatever the right phrase is peach. Okay, so it's a cyclical process because we basically want to say to people, you're going to do a sort of threat model of your architecture and you have to keep doing it every time you like release a new major version because otherwise you risk what we call isolation drift where like you're adding new features or you're changing things and you're not documenting them properly because you want to work fast and you want to release new features, but then you risk changing something that might break some of your assumptions. Like you assumed that every tenant is running on their own virtual machine, but then you add a new feature that relies on something that, that you know, that, that breaks the isolation by connecting things that aren't, aren't supposed to be connected. So it's sort of a cycle, but basically like the, the point where you would start would be mapping all of your customer facing interest interfaces, like whether you have like some form, whether you have a CLI, whether you have uh, some API that you use or a console, and then you figure out how complex these things are. If you have a form where customers just submit text, then that would obviously be less complex than if you're running like a Jupyter notebook that allows a customer to essentially run code as a service and everything in between. Then we would determine the isolation of the interface, which like a multi-step process where we say what security boundaries are in place. Like are you using a container? Are you using a virtual machine? Are you, you, are you using role-level security in a database? Then we make sure that you have a few different security boundaries in place so that you're not just relying on one single security boundary, one single point of failure that, you know, it's enough that there's one zero-day vulnerability in that boundary, and then immediately all your customers are vulnerable to it. So there should be at least two security boundaries in place to make sure that, you're, that you wouldn't be susceptible to something coming up tomorrow that would basically destroy trust in your, in your company. Next step is measuring hardening, where hardening we define as realizing the potential of a security boundary. Like a VM, it might potentially is a very, very strong security boundary, but if it's misconfigured, then it's not. So hardening is basically proper configuration of a security boundary to make sure that it realizes its potential. The next step is to consider context. Like once we've, we understand how strong our isolation is at the moment or how strong we, it, it is in the planned version of our product, what other things do we have to take into consideration? Like if we have a really, really strict budget and there's no way to change it, then we have to figure out how to make do with what we have. 
uh, and then we have to sort of compensate for that by other means. It's possible that the sensitivity of the data that we're storing is very, very high, in which case we have to make sure isolation is as strong as it can be. Or maybe the the data isn't as sensitive, or maybe certain areas are more sensitive or less sensitive than others. So then we can sort of skimp on isolation in areas where the data isn't as sensitive. And obviously, if you're a big company and you have compliance frameworks that you have to adhere to, then that also determines certain things that that might be out of your control uh, in terms of isolation. And the next step is to modify the design, which is basically we thought of three sort of directions that developers can go in to make isolation stronger. One is improving separation, uh, basically making security boundaries stronger or adding more layers of security boundaries. The second is reducing complexity, like perhaps you're using a Jupyter notebook, but maybe you can sort of add an API in front of that so that you have a bit more control over what sort of input your your users are putting into the system. And the last thing you can do is increase duplication, which is pretty straightforward. It just means taking what shared resources that are currently being used by all your users and either giving each user their own resource or maybe even just doing some sort of limiting the blast radius by making sure that users are grouped together so that like you only have a maximum of like five users on each system so that if, even if a hacker manages to find a vulnerability and figures out how to get across ten, get unauthorized cross tenant access, they'd still only be able to reach like another four users, which is bad, but it's not as bad as being able to reach essentially like an arbitrary number amount of users in your, in your network. Yeah, no, that that reminds me of I'm, I'm flashing back to a threat model I did at Rackspace when they were, this is granted years ago, so this thing doesn't, I don't know, it may or may not still exist, but it, this was before it may even made it out the door. We were doing a threat model of a, a big data as a service, so Hadoop basically. And I'm drawing on a whiteboard and talking with the lead leads of that team. And it turns out that, well, everybody, they had this design where they would have individual data stores per customer or per tenant. And then the shared resource where every tenant would run their HQL, the, the SQL basically to talk to Hadoop, right? Well, so we're doing this threat model. And I said, so let me ask you guys a question. What does it take to become a Rackspace customer? And they're like, oh, I don't know. You need to want to use it. I'm like, it's a credit card. Let's really, let's be frank. That's all it is. If you have a credit card, you can become a Rackspace customer. I don't There's no technical bar for sure, right? It's it's financial bar. So, okay. I, I Anybody with a customer now can come and get your service and write HQL queries against their their own data. Okay, I said, but HQL queries are happening on this shared resource. And they're like, yeah. I said, so what if I'm a really dumb customer with a credit card and I write a really bad HQL thing that eats up all the CPU resources? And they kind of went, oh, oh, that'd be bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would be. I think it would be really bad. So we literally stopped the threat model and they went off, did a major redesign and came back and redid it. So that's a, another instance of, you're talking about the iterativeness. That was a very interesting aspect of working in product security for a cloud provider, because for several of our really fast revving products, we'd almost have to stage quarterly uh, or so threat models just to keep up with the, oh, we took off that box and added these other boxes because of reasons, right? You had this kind of churn within a product that was fast, much faster than a normal air quote. I don't know what a normal is anymore, but a normal situation of a threat model where you kind of do it once, maybe every year, maybe just Mm -hmm. once if you're a really big company. Um, And the fundamentals of the pieces of the application or whatever your threat modeling doesn't change enough over time, but man, in cloud, 
<laughs> that is not the case. Yeah. So like the idea with Peach is basically to say like threat modeling already exists. It's already something that companies do. And we want tenant isolation to just be another like chapter in the threat modeling process. Because I think there's a lot of focus being placed on on other areas, like for example, on API security. Uh, and the reason we think that tenant isolation should be should be highlighted as well is first of all that tenant isolation essentially allows you to compensate for bad API security in certain cases, not in all cases. Because you know, if you have really, really good tenant isolation, then the worst someone can do if they find a vulnerability in your API is basically damage themselves or cause you know bugs that might be hard to fix, but they wouldn't be able to reach other tenants' data. Obviously, you know that isn't true always. There are API vulnerabilities that would let you touch other tenants' data, but, but for a lot of them, isolation is a compensating factor. And the second thing is that I think like tenant isolation is something that, that often goes under the radar. Like developers don't really think about it when they're planning their applications, whether because they have implicit trust in their users, like in the, in the story you mentioned before, or because they're too worried about other things that are also worrisome, but you know, that, that are sort of more classical problems. Whereas tenant isolation is something that isn't unique to the cloud, but it's very, very, it, you know, in the cloud, it becomes a lot more significant because everything is shared, but almost by default. Yeah, and I, I mean, like, once again, like banging the, the SaaS drum, that's such a huge thing. And SaaS seems to be the way that people like to consume services these days. You know, it's almost like weird that I'm doing something not in a tab in my browser. Um, yeah. So this is, although it is, it feels like it may be focused on the larger cloud providers. This is really something that's a problem for tons and tons of people offering software as a service because you, you have these trade-offs to make. And you're right, like I spent years as a developer, doing pen tests, doing a whole bunch of AppSec work before I went to Rack and then realized like, oh, there's this whole other dimension to thinking about things that, that and I'm thrilled that I had that experience because it really helped me get that, that perspective that I didn't have, certainly going in that like, wow, yeah, this, this multi-tenant thing is a very interesting and can be extremely challenging perspective, right, to do. We also had an interesting exercise we did where we, in essence, threat modeled all of Rack's cloud over the course of about a year, it, just individually talking to all the different teams. And as we got closer and closer to sort of being able to cross that office done, we, we had many, many threat models that were individual. And you could see that the, I don't know, the compute team also called out to the, I don't know, the IAM team's service. And so we started literally sticking these threat models up on the wall and using string to connect them. And it, it just, it got to be fascinating because we found out that over the course of doing this sort of tape and paper exercise, very low tech, but very effective. We found there was this one service that it's been too many years for me to remember, but it was an, it was a, it was a very esoteric service. Like give me your tenant ID and I'll give you your billing zip code or something like from a risk perspective, you're like, meh, like it's not important, but like every piece of our cloud called that service. And until we started taping them on the board and drawing, you know, taping strings up, we had no idea that this, what seems like a, a one-off who cares service, like, eh, I don't, it's not important. 
Um, well, it is because like every piece of the cloud called that sucker. So there's a lot of very interesting things when you get into the weeds of doing this like cloud level issues. I also remember another issue at Rack where we, it was in our compute and it was such that we had to restart every hypervisor. So just patching every hypervisor across, I don't know, 10K plus hypervisors meant using the migration, right, of the live migration off to a different hypervisor, stand up new hypervisor, live migrate over there, patch this guy, live migrate back, rinse and repeat 10,000 times. <laughs> it was, it's amazing when you have to sort of restart the cloud, but keep it up the decisions that go in to make that happen. So solving these ahead of time with the threat model or with the Peach framework could have incredible cost savings. Cause I, I felt for the compute team who had to they basically wrote software to figure out how to update their cloud because it was such a huge problem. There's no, you're never gonna type in a terminal or click with a mouse and effectively do that. You have to automate it at the scale that you are at cloud. That actually touches another like type of vulnerability that we look into sometimes and that, that we also have on CloudVolumeDB a, a few records of, which is the middleware vulnerabilities where you basically have software being installed by default by the vendor, but the moment it's installed, it basically leaves their shared responsibility model area and goes into the sort of no man's land where nobody's really responsible for it. And they justifiably don't want to auto-update it because that could break things. So you basically have this, uh, this problem of middleware that is in highly prevalent, has high permissions on the system, increases attack surface sometimes drastically, and isn't being auto-updated. And that's still a hard problem for the CSPs. Like, how do you actually deal with this? And how do you make sure that you can auto-update it without breaking things? Yeah, nobody wants the cloud to go down. That's a bad day. <laughs> yeah. So what's the next step for all this? I, I know you just started an OWASP project, the cloud tenant isolation project at OWASP, which is awesome. Any sort of next steps or what's planned in the future? What do you, what do you have in store for us going forward? So I think uh, we, we want to continue enumerating cloud vulnerabilities and, and learn from them so that we can get more ideas for areas of improvement and learn more about what types of mitigations and what types of security boundaries are out there. Ideally to create like a library of possible security mitigations, which ones have proven more or less effective over the years. And also to create a very simple way of implementing each of them in each of the hyperscale providers. So like you could get like a Terraform file with an example architecture of like, this is how you would set up a container running on a VM that's been properly hardened by default, for example. So that's one area where we want to go into. Another is we want to create more, more case studies. So like, and the main challenge we ran into when trying to like create, like put up examples of here is an architecture and this is how we would analyze it using Peach is the same thing that I mentioned before, that there's not enough information about closed source services about how they're actually implementing stuff. And ironically, I mean, I find that ironic, maybe that's not the right use of the word. The best information, the cases where we have the best information are the ones where our vulnerability research team basically managed to completely pawn you know, the cloud service provider and, and get cross-tenant. So like where they were able to do that 
we know what's going on in the network and we know how their what their architecture looks like because we basically did a red team. But right. if they didn't manage to, then we don't know because something blocked them and they have no idea what's going on behind that security boundary. And that's not particularly scalable, right? I mean, I'm sure you have some yeah. very bright people there, but bright people can only do so much in a day, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I've thought about doing as a first step is actually to go towards open source because in open source projects such as Mastodon, for example, where you have basically like everybody knows exactly what's going on there. It's very popular and we can go and sort of review the code, do a threat model and analyze it according to Peach. And maybe even we'll find stuff that might be worth improving on. Yeah. Have you looked at OpenStack at all? I know that uh, no, tends to yet. now be a, a private cloud rather than a public, but hmm. that may be another open instance where you can get some details because it's all yeah, open source. So you mentioned next steps and stuff. So we want to do the, the library of security boundaries. We want to have like Terraform templates for setting up secure environments for applications running on the cloud that'll be hardened according to Peach by default. And we want to have like more case studies so people have more examples to look at of both strong implementations and weak implementations of tenant isolation. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are very successful because I'm super curious to see how that goes. I'm going to surprise you because I forgot to tell you this before we started recording. Maybe you've listened to the podcast and you know about this, but there's a deck of cards that I have from the Basecamp card company. And on each of the cards is a little question that has completely related, unrelated, I should say, to anything we've talked about today. It's a conversation starter. So I like to end the podcast with me randomly drawing a card and then asking you a question that has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. It's been kind of fun that, so far. That sounds great. Okay. Oh, interesting. Well, the six of hearts for you is what is the hardest you've ever worked? Oh, wow. I've got to say probably one of my early jobs in the military where I was commanding dozens of people under fire, <laughs> not necessarily as a, you know, in combat, but just, you know, because we're in Israel, then, you know, we get rocket fire. <laughs> yes. That's probably the, definitely the hardest I've worked, you know, very, very sleep deprived, very, but very interesting. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I don't regret anything, essentially. I think I learned a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. I This is uh, pales in comparison. Uh, but one of the things I got out of my transition to Rackspace when I started working there and started the product security group was there was a lot of really smart people there. I mean, go figure. And you couldn't do the traditional like, no, no, this is bad. I'm security. I'm telling you this. You need to fix it. They would uh, say exceptionally blunt things to you in meetings. Let's just put it that way to keep it polite and G-rated. And so it forced me to really up my game. I mean, it, it, it felt bad the first couple of times. I'm like, well, of course you fix us. They're like, no, we're not going to. Why? What, do you, what could you do with that? I'm like, oh, well, okay, fine. I'll show you. Like, but it, it really did help me like get a much better grasp on the fact that I can't just wave the like security says it's bad flag and get away with that. I needed to show like, this is the real impact of this. And this is what it, what I can do with this thing besides. And I think security people have a habit of getting in they, because you deal with this day in day out. It's sort of like, well, of course that's bad. Definitely. People, if, if it's not your day job, you need to kind of explain well, like, this is why this particular thing is bad. Here's what I can do. Right. And, and 
give them a not a quite a POC, but at least a, a walkthrough of like these are the steps that would happen if this thing was actually exercised by a, a naughty person. <laughs> yeah, and you have to you have to learn that it's okay to repeat yourself and it's okay to explain things to different people or even the same people multiple times because you know what's obvious to you as a security practitioner is not obvious to them. And it goes the other way around, like things that are obvious to a developer because they've worked on a certain project are not obvious to you who might have contact with a bunch of different projects that are that are going on in the company. And like it requires patience on both sides and requires people to sort of invest heavily in their explanation skills and then using terms that everybody understands. Personally, I've been doing, since I joined Wiz, a lot of diagramming. Like I've been using like Excaladraw, which is like this really nice diagramming SAS, it's in the web. <laughs> so yep, of course. I really like. Yeah. And I've been sort of using it both to help me think and also to help me communicate stuff to the people I work with. Yeah, definitely. Pictures worth a thousand words. Absolutely. Well, th this has been super interesting. And I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day or, or afternoon for you, I guess, right now. <laughs> and thanks. Thanks for taking time. And I, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank No Name Security for making it possible for me to record this episode. No Name is a complete and proactive API security platform that protects APIs in real time and detects vulnerabilities and misconfigurations before they can be exploited. No Name is an out-of-band solution that integrates with your existing infrastructure to provide deeper visibility and security. Please give them a look.